You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. For context here, Herod finds out that the time of the Messiah uh, is around his, his time, that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The Magi come through, and they're like, hey, we hear there's a king. And Herod's like, excuse me, what's that, a competitor? And he starts killing all the babies two years and under, all around Bethlehem trying to kill God and creates a huge calamity. So Jesus and Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt until Herod dies, uh, which isn't too long after that. And the family then returns, not to Bethlehem, but to Mary's hometown of Nazareth. And that's all that you get about Jesus's childhood from the book of Matthew. Uh, definitely not focused on, on that for good reasons. He's focused on Jesus and his ministry and in his teaching. Um, and so we're moving rapidly on about 30 years into the future when we, when we see Jesus next. But before we do that, he segues into this thing about John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, 1 through 3, he says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So there's this guy, John the Baptist, who's fulfilling this role that he's talking about. And he's saying, uh, Isaiah told us that before the Messiah come, there would be one who would come and prepare the way. And then he quotes Isaiah 43. Now, I recently had an embarrassing incident where I emailed some friends some scripture from the NASB, and they pointed out to me that what I'd emailed them was all caps. And they thought I was screaming scripture at them. <laughs> so in these days, we have to be careful in in the NASB, when they quote the Old Testament, they put it in all caps to indicate to you that they're quoting the Old Testament. So if you're like me and you copy and paste stuff out of your Bible software into an email address, just be aware that people might think you're screaming at them when it comes to quoting the Old Testament. But the point here is, is that this is, John the Baptist is playing an important role in God's plan, and that this is part of the sequence that God prophesied from the Old Testament so that people would be able to authenticate who the Messiah is. So John the Baptist, we learn from the book of Luke, is the son of the priest Zacharias and the woman Elizabeth. And John is born to Elizabeth, who is in advanced in her age. She's in her 70s or 80s. She's been barren her whole life. And an angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias and says, guess what? You're going to have a baby. And this is a common theme in the Old Testament, that you have men and women who are advanced in years and have not been able to have children, and it's a regret in their life. And then God comes and says, actually, this was all part of the plan. I'm going to use your child in a specific way, in a special way. This happened with Samuel, the prophet. This happened with Abraham and Sarah. 
This is something that's familiar imagery that's being used here to specify someone special is going to come and be used by God in a special way. If you go look at Luke chapter 1, this is the conversation that Zacharias the priest was having with the angel of the Lord. And he is saying of John, he will turn turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, meaning the Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And you see again, the all caps there, he is quoting the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, specifically the very last section of the very last chapter of the very last book of the Old Testament. This is like the last thing that the Old Testament says, and then there's 400 years of silence. No prophets in Israel and no Messiah. And so they've been waiting, and what they're told specifically to wait for is here in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there's all this talk in the Old Testament prophecy of the future coming of the Messiah, and it coincides with what is sometimes referred to as the day of the Lord, and sometimes as here is referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. John the Baptist's role is to prepare the way for the Messiah, and the Old Testament Jewish expectation of the Messiah is that he is going to come and overthrow the kingdoms of men. They're reading passages like Daniel chapter 2, which is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had with the statue that foresaw the future kingdoms of men. And what happens at the end of this dream is the statue is made out of different metals that represent different kingdoms. And then this stone comes, it says, cut from a mountain without human hands, and it smashes all the statue, all the kingdoms of men, and it grows into a mountain, and it becomes the one unified kingdom on the earth, and that it is the Messiah who will come and establish his permanent rule among the nations of men. And to the Israelites, this was pretty exciting because they were a pretty small power. They were a pretty militarily an economically insignificant power compared to those of Egypt and Rome and Greece. And they've spent a lot of time uh, in capitulation to these larger economic and military powers. Currently, in the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, they are under the occupation of Rome, and they do not particularly like being led by these Gentile Romans and all their many perverted gods. 
But Rome is so massive, it's so powerful, it's, it's dominated the known world, and they're thinking, how are we ever going to get our freedom? We, the chosen people of God. And they're like, ah, the Messiah. It says the Messiah is going to come and overthrow all the kingdoms of men. And they can read Daniel 2 with the smashing of the, of the, of the statue in Daniel 9 that says that the Messiah will come and establish his rule on earth. And so this is their greatest hope for their liberation from Rome because the prophetic record says that the Messiah should come during this time and that Israel then would be set up as the seat of power for a global ruler. And they're all like, we're waiting for that. And that's what Malachi talks about. Malachi says, you just wait before the Messiah comes to establish his rule, there will be one who comes in the power of Elijah to prepare the way and turn the hearts of the people back to their God. Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet, says in 30 verse 3, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds and a time of doom for the nations. And the Israelites are reading this and they're like, Yeah, God's going to get them. Get these Romans out of here. This day of the Lord was a day of judgment. The idea here is that God himself is sitting back and letting the drama, the divine drama of the human condition play itself out where armies rise and empires fall. People are fighting and killing each other and there's all this injustice and poor people are suffering and innocent people are suffering and that God is going to let this play out until at a certain point he is going to say enough we tried it your way you brought evil and wickedness and selfishness into my creation and now I am going to come and destroy evil and set up a just and righteous and merciful and good Social government system. That's his plan. To create a society where people worship God and treat each other correctly. And Elijah would come first to prepare the people for this event. So they're looking for the Messiah, but at the same time, they're looking for Elijah. Because Elijah is supposed to come first, and an angel of the Lord appears to the high priest Zechariah while he's in the temple. It says, you, my friend, in your 80s and your wife, who have never born children, are going to have a son, and he is going to play the part of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And his job is going to be to convince the people of Israel that they need to get right with God because God is going to come punish the wicked and that will include you, people of Israel, if you're not right with God. So John's message then is repent for the kingdom of God is near. He is the voice crawling from the wilderness. He is saying, listen, the time has come. The great and terrible day of the Lord is, is nigh. The kingdom of God is returning. The Messiah is coming. 
guys, let's make ourselves, let's get right with God, and that the way to do that begins with this term, repent, which is a very churchy word. It's a word that we've probably heard, but maybe never used before. I don't know if you've ever told anyone they need to repent before, but um, that probably wasn't a super friendly conversation if you did. It's just a word that has this sort of charged meaning behind it. But the word itself is actually a very interesting word in the Greek, which is the original language in which the New Testament was written. And that word in Greek is metanoia. Metanoia, often with Greek, they just take two words and put them together to make a new word. Meta is mind, and noia is change. So to repent, the word that we use is related to the Latin word, but the word in the Greek that the New Testament uses is change your mind. If you're rebelling against God, you need to change your mind. If you are hurting people, you need to change the way that you're thinking about things. You're heading in this direction, and instead of that, you need to head in God's direction. That's what repentance is. And so what John's message to the people of Israel is, is stop going your own way, change your mind about how you're living your life, because you have the scriptures, you have the Old Testament, you have the prophets, you have Moses, you know what God wants. So you need to decide whether or not you want to live God's way or your own way. Matthew says in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was of locusts and wild honey. This is sort of typical Old Testament prophetic imagery. These guys were running around with wild hair and burlap sacks eating honey and bugs. You know, the, these guys, this, this is to key his audience in, and this is somewhat reminiscent of the description of Elijah in 2 Kings, verse 2. He was sort of a wild man, and he was hairy, living out in the wilderness. And so the imagery here is, is to, for Matthew, to his specific audience, to have them going, oh, yeah, he's making it seem like John the Baptist is Elijah. And the Jerusalem, then Jerusalem was going out to him. There were people were leaving the city, going out into the desert to the district around the Jordan River, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So they were coming out and hearing John teach, and he was like, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And they were like, oh my God, all of it's coming true. Here you are, you're like Elijah. And I've been living my life for all these other things, and I haven't been connected with God, and I haven't been walking with God. And I've been harming people and I've been selfish and he's like be baptized and he washes them now baptism here is different than new testament baptism this is a jewish custom of baptism that pre-existed christian baptism and it had a very different meaning and it was used for a very different purpose and it wasn't really instructed by the old testament it was just sort of a cultural custom that if you were a non-Jewish person and you became Jewish, there were basically three things that you had to do, three elements of Jewish conversion. One is you made a sacrifice, which meant that you took an animal and you killed it, and this was to demonstrate that you understood that the penalty of sin is death, 
and that something needs to pay for your sin in your place. And so this would be a sin offering according to the, rec- the, um, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Then if you were a man, you could look forward to circumcision, the clipping of the foreskin from your penis, which was a symbol in your most intimate moments to remind you that you were in a covenant relationship with the God of Abraham. And then you got to take a little bath to wash away all your moral filth. This was sort of where this comes in, and this is more of a cultural thing. But the idea was you were a filthy Gentile, but now that you've made your sacrifice, you've decided to worship Yahweh, you've been circumcised, we're going to wash all the filthy Gentile stuff off of you. Wash away your sin. A symbolic washing of sin. As though to say, now you are clean. And so this is the kind of baptism that John is talking about here, is this custom of washing. The word baptism literally just means to put into. So if you're baptized in water, you're put in water. And it was a ritual washing. And it's interesting because John is washing people that already consider themselves to be Jewish. So this would have been a little bit of a strange paradox for a lot of their thinking. They're like, no, I'm Jewish. I don't need to be washed. I'm not a filthy Gentile. I've been Jewish and I've been raised under the laws of Moses all my life. I don't, I don't need that. And John would be like, you need to get right with God. And the way that you get right with God is you change your mind about the way that, you, that you're living. And you're living in a way that is morally hostile to the things of God. And it doesn't matter. You're not really one of God's people just because you're born into a certain household. You have to make a decision. You have to acknowledge that you need to be cleansed. This is John's message to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Matthew tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the religious rulers, these were the high-powered lawyers, priests, Uh, the religious figures, the politicians, the people who had the seat of political power in Jerusalem, they were considered to be the most righteous men of Israel. They were all about, you know, being very clean, being very observant of the laws, being very careful not to associate with sinful people. And everyone's coming out to see John. And so these guys show up. And John has a greeting for them. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Not a great evangelistic approach, probably. You see these guys coming in their fine clothes and they've probably got an entourage of people with them and they're coming out to see what's happening. And he says, you guys are the worst of all. Who warned you? You're the guys I want the Messiah to come and bring some wrath for. And, but he tells them, even though you're wicked, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show us that you have changed your mind and do not suppose that you can say for yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. 
For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter what household you're born into. It doesn't matter if you have a Jewish background. Having a Jewish cultural background doesn't mean that you have faith in the God of the Bible. Even being a Pharisee or a Sadducee, being a religious priest, if you think that it's good enough just to be born into the right family, then you have a wrong understanding of how God works, who God is, and what he wants from you. God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. He doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to be born into a Jewish family. You have to embrace the Jewish faith. He says the axe is already laid at the, tr- at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just because you're a part of this great thing, you're in the covenant, you're circumcised, you have these, these outward rituals that you follow, it doesn't mean squat if you don't have your heart right before God. That's John's message. You can't be born into faith and salvation. It's a choice. You may have been raised your whole life going to church Grandma made sure that you got baptized when you were a baby. You may have been in Sunday school. You may have done all the confirmation classes. You may have been there every Sunday and twice on on Christmas and Easter. You can do all of those things, but if you haven't considered what is your faith position towards God, then you don't have a relationship with God. You've got all the trimmings and the outward pictures of who God is, but what about your heart? Where does that play into the equation? And John is saying repentance is the path to a right relationship with God, not a ceremony, not a service, not giving your money for a tithe, not wearing the right clothes or eating the right food or saying the right words. It is deciding to agree with God that you need a Savior. You cannot do it on your own. John's message is you need to get right with God because Messiah is coming. And he's going to draw those who are his own to himself. And those who are his own are those who have faith in him. And this is how John prepares the way. And it's something that's very much still with us today. It's a dynamic of Christian faith. This is the most offensive thing in all of Christianity right here. It's the fact and the truth that before we can understand, before we can be saved by Jesus, we have to know and agree that we need a savior. This is the bad news that we have to understand that we are not okay with God in our natural state. We are born into this world hostile to the God of the universe. And for a lot of us, that's very difficult to to grasp. We say, well, you know, I think I'm basically a good person. We look around the room and we see how other people are living and we look on the news and on the internet and we're like, 
I am definitely in the top 50% of how moral people live. And that should be good enough. But Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A staggering reality. You see, left to our own devices, we like to think, well, God will take, you know, the top 50%. Or maybe if he's really strict, he'll take the top 25% of the good people and he'll let them into heaven because they were good compared to everyone else. But the truth is, according to the scriptures, is God's standard is not the majority of, he doesn't take a, an average or a mean of the evil of the human race and then sort us according to where we fall on that middle scale. The actual standard for what is good enough is God himself. God has declared that he is sinless, he is righteous, he is just, he is merciful, and he is perfect. And in the fact that he is just, what that means is, is that he abhors evil. He cannot, he cannot stand it, it enrages him, and he has sworn to destroy all evil, anything that is imperfect. Now you get the offensive part. Because what this is saying is, when it comes to anything that's imperfect, anything that has any moral evil at all, that very much includes you and me. What we need a savior from is, we need it to be saved from what we deserve and in terms of, God's wrath towards us. And this is exactly John's message to the Jewish people. And they're kind of like we are. They're like, what are you talking about? I've been going to synagogue my whole life. I can trace my lineage from father to father to father, all the way back to King David. I give 10% of my income. I don't, I don't associate with these Romans. I keep myself clean in the dietary laws. And they would be able to sort out all these different reasons why they are good. And John says to them, none of that matters. It's your heart. Are you willing to come to the place where you are able to recognize that you need to be cleansed and you cannot cleanse yourself? And a lot of people in Jerusalem that year we're saying, yeah, actually, I do believe that I need help. I've tried to live a righteous life. I've tried to live according to the laws. And I try to make everybody else believe that I can live God's way. But in the reality is I have all these secret things or not so secret things that I do that bring dishonor to myself and that should anger God. And that when people begin to wrestle with the bad news, whether they're Pharisees or whether they're tax collectors, and they come on down on the side of, I don't think I can do this on my, myself. I think I need help. I think I need to be saved. John has done his work in preparing the way 
for Jesus to come on the scene and tell them, now that you understand that you are sinful, will you accept my forgiveness? Will you let me pay the penalty for your sin? Just like the picture of that where a, a Gentile convert into Judaism would have to make a sacrifice to show that they know that the wages of sin is death, that someone needs to take their place, Jesus would come and say, can I actually take your place? I love you that much that I have come to take away the sins of all those who will allow me to do so and choose to let me pay the price for them. Romans 3.10, there is none that are righteous, not even one. This is designed to offend us. The more religious you are, the more your identity is wrapped up in being a good person, the more that you think that you work hard and that you should be thought of as a good person, the more this will piss you off. And God will say, good. You're getting it. If you're mad, it's because you understand what exactly it is that I'm saying, which is that you have problems that you cannot solve. It could be a, a selfishness problem. It could be an anger problem. It could be a greed problem. It could be a lust problem. It could be all of those problems. And we have to come to the point of humility where we recognize that while there are valuable things about us, while there are good things, and we can do beautiful and amazing and cool things because God has designed us to do so, that we are fundamentally flawed and helpless to change ourselves. And in desperate need of God to save us. That's the bad news. And the bad news has to come before the good news, just like John the Baptist has to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Preparing the way for Jesus. What John is saying is, if you think you're a good person, you're wrong. If you think you deserve to go to heaven, you're wrong. If you think you're better than others, you're wrong. If you think you can earn God's acceptance, you're wrong. And they say, well, then what are we supposed to do? And he says, change your mind and take a bath. Change your mind about going your own way. Change your mind about thinking that you can earn it. Change your mind about the fact that you're a good person. And instead, accept the mercy of a good God. And make a public proclamation of the fact that you need to be cleansed. Which then prepares the way for the good news. The good news is that you are loved. That God loves you. He created you. He cares for you. He loves you so much he came and died for you, specifically for you. 
You are very important to him. You are very valuable to him. You are beloved children to him. And he does not want to see you destroyed. He wants to see you lifted up. He wants to see you fulfill the potential that he created within you when he created you in his image. He wants to undo the corruption. He wants to set right the injustice. And he wants to create an eternal community of people that is founded in mutual respect, adoration, and love. He wants you to understand the bad news is absolutely true, but do not misconstrue it to that you are not valued and that you are not loved. God freely gives grace and forgiveness to all those who are willing to admit that they are broken. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely that God was in Christ bringing the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That we, while we were running around treating each other terrible and arguing about which of us was the greatest, and we were gathering up all the things that we wanted for our own comfort, God came down in the middle of all that mess, and he showed us what love is. And then he died for us. And while we were accusing him of being a blasphemer and a criminal and a thief, and as we were hanging him on a cross, as we were driving the nails into his arms, he had nothing but compassion and love and concern for the lostness of our hearts. And that while he hung on that cross, he took the wrath that we all deserve for all the sins of the human race, for all history, and he poured that wrath out upon himself so that he could pay the price of what we deserve. Because he loves us that much and he wants a relationship with us and because there was no other way we could be made right with God. And then he says, I want to use you as a recipient of my grace and my love as an example to others so that they can find me too. That's his plan. That's what we're setting up here. And John was preparing the way for Jesus to demonstrate all of this in the way that he lived his life. He says, therefore, because of all of this great stuff that God does, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The true baptism of the New Testament, cleansed by the blood, by the death of Jesus Christ taking our place, 
makes us born anew, makes our conscience and our soul cleansed of all moral guilt, not just for what we've done, but for all the stuff that we're still going to do, and sets us up as a shining beacon and a light, not of our greatness, but of his mercy. That's the plan. And the point of all of this is that a day of judgment is coming. There will come a time God will blow the referee whistle and he will say, enough evil, and he will judge the wicked who are demanding to pay for their own sins. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it hasn't happened yet. But the Bible continues to promise that that day will come where God will say it's too late to make a choice. You've made it. Are you going to let me take the penalty that you deserve upon myself? Or are you going to shake your fist and demand that you pay for your own, retro- your own sins? And God will honor that choice. Joel 2.13 says, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Stop shaking your fist at God and telling him what you want, what you think is right. Give up the battle, give up the fight, and come home to your loving Father who adores you but will not let you throw this tantrum and destroy his creation. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for everyone to change their mind. He wants us all, but he will not drag us kicking and screaming into a relationship with him. We have to choose. The point is, being raised in a Jewish home or a Christian home, whether it's a synagogue or a church, that's not the same as faith. What you do on the outside in terms of your rituals, what you do on the outside in terms of the the laws that you follow, the clothes that you wear, the music that you listen to, and what charities you invest in, is not who you are. The question is, is are you willing to recognize that there's an exchange, that you have to be offended by God's no and recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is not one righteous, not not even one, and that includes me. And call out to God for a savior in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what determines whether or not you have a relationship with God. Romans 10, 9 through 11 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice all the things it doesn't say. It doesn't say if you go to church, if you pray before you go to sleep. 
doesn't say if you read little, you know, Bible adventure stories with your kids. It doesn't say if you're there at Easter and if you're there at Christmas. It doesn't say if you light the little candle. It doesn't say if you give 10% of your income. It says if you believe with your mouth and you, your heart, <laughs> believe with your mouth, believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord then you will be saved, and so will anybody else, regardless of how they were raised, of what harm they did, of the way that, and the wickedness and the shame that they brought upon themselves. Despite all of those things, they will be forgiven if they believe. And whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So I know what you're thinking. Well, is John the Baptist Elijah? That'd be really weird if he was, wouldn't it? Because for one thing, there's no reincarnation in the Bible. Elijah lived hundreds of years before. And Hebrews 9.27 says, we live once and we die once and that's it. There's no reincarnation in the Bible. On the other hand, Elijah is one of two people in the Bible that didn't actually die. It says that he was sucked up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Very unusual and perplexing. But then John the Baptist was born a baby. So how can he be Elijah? Yet Elijah was to come. Also interesting, we'll see in Matthew 17, Elijah does appear in the transfiguration along with Moses. Jesus goes up to a mountain. God, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Moses and Elijah show up and they're like, yeah. We confirm this is the guy. Well, to answer that question, stick with us in our series. We'll get to that when we get to Matthew 11. And we'll, we'll look at the biblical evidence for how this thing plays out. Let's just pray and then we'll go outside. It's hard. I remember as a non-Christian, not having a hard time with the idea that I was sinful, but that I was that sinful. I remember really wrestling with, am I so bad that I should be destroyed? And it's that measure that we get wrong, where we measure ourselves against, we want to measure ourselves, God, against Hitler and Pol Pot. We want to measure ourselves against the worst possible evil and, and make ourselves look good, but that's not the measure. And we recognize that now. We see that now, and, and now we're so glad that it's not. We're so glad that your standard is perfection because it means that you will not tolerate evil, and that makes you good. But we are evil, and we are selfish, and we, we have a lot of problems and we've, we hurt ourselves, even as Christians, even as people who know the, the, the difference and have your strength and your word and your spirit, we still struggle greatly with evil. And it's such a great comfort to know that you've got that covered too. We just pray, God, for anyone here that might not know you. We just pray that they'll sense 
you pulling on their heartstrings, that they'll hear you knocking on the door of their heart, and they'll consider opening themselves up to you, even if they're offended, even if they're hurt, and even if they're angry. Just pray that they'll wrestle through and discover the truth of the greatness of who you are. And pray for all those in our family and our friends and our neighbors, especially around with Easter coming, there may be opportunities and open doors. There may be people that haven't had much personal contact with anyone and are asking deep questions about the meaning of life. We pray that you'll bring those people across our paths and give us the right words filled with love and seasoned with grace to tell them about you. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.